You're listening to a sermon from Oak Hill Fellowship Church, located in Strasburg, Pennsylvania. You can learn more about us by visiting oakhillfellowship.com or finding us on social media. Now grab a Bible, a notebook, and get ready to be spiritually enriched by the Word of God. You can open your Bibles to Daniel 11. Oh, we are in for it today. Daniel 11, okay? You ready? Be ready, okay? Uh, back in June, my family had an opportunity to go to the beach for a couple of days, and uh, it was it was my five year old son's Titus, uh, his his real first time to get into the waves. And I mean, if you know Titus, you know he loved it, right? Like I mean, he's just like he's like full action. Whatever is the highest amount of action, that's what he's all about. And and, and so uh, it, he he would love to get out there, but it really didn't take that much to knock him over. And uh, if he was going to stay standing at all, if he was going to get to enjoy the surf and the waves, he was going to have to hold on to both of my hands the entire time. Because the waves, to be honest with you, really weren't that big. They, they were you know, big enough to knock a five-year-old over, but definitely not big enough to knock me over or not even to throw me off balance. And, and um, being much stronger and heavier than a five-year-old, thank the Lord, uh, they, didn't, they didn't touch me. And really, that is a good picture of our Christian lives in the midst of the corruption and brokenness of this world. Do you ever feel like you were just kind of getting tossed in the waves of the decisions of the corrupt and powerful? Do you ever feel that way? Like students, uh, maybe you feel that way in going back to school this year. Like, a governor or an administrator somewhere just kind of made some blanket decision, and now you have to deal with it. By the way, Solanco students, I got to talk to your uh, administrator, their, your superintendent this week, and I just want you to know, like, he, he's got your best in mind, and he, he loves you, and, and he's, his hands are tied by some things, but uh, I'm sure that's true of the LS school district as well, and, and uh, all the other school districts that might be represented here. Um, but maybe you feel like you're just kind of at the mercy of some corrupt leader somewhere else who's making decisions from a distance and you've got to deal with it. Maybe you felt that way in, in the way that your workplace has been affected by the coronavirus and, and you're just like, yeah, it's, it's killing us. It's, it's killing our business. It's killing our bottom line. How, are you, how does anybody expect us to, to make a living this way? I know a lot of people of different races have, have felt this way about the corruption that is within certain powerful systems that they live within every day. And in an election year, uh, it can feel like rulers are willing to do whatever it takes to get the upper hand. Even if it's not in the best interest of the people, as long as they can keep the votes, they're do, willing to do whatever it takes. And even if, especially if it's not in the best interest of God's people, they really could care less about that. And just like Titus holding my hands in the waves, if we aren't clinging to God during these times, we are going to get swept away. We're going to get knocked off our feet. We can easily feel like we are drowning in our faith. And we can be, we, we can be even swept into the corruption ourselves if we aren't careful. Throughout history, God's people have felt this way. The, the nations raged around them and they were stuck in the middle. Sometimes feeling like they were forgotten and that God had stopped working. Sometimes tempted to choose sides of corrupt leaders out of self-preservation. 
But in reality, God was working all of the world events together to purify for himself a holy people who would cling to him alone. That's what God wants from us more than anything, that we would learn to turn to him and to cling to him and to hold on to him. That our ultimate allegiance would be in his indestructible kingdom. And that's been the heart that we've been seeking to develop the entire way through this study in the book of Daniel. We're down to the home stretch now. We're in the last two chapters that we're going to cover this week and next week. And Daniel is receiving the final vision of the book through chapters 10, 11, and 12. You'll remember from last Sunday that Daniel is in his mid to late 80s by this point in the book. He's seen corrupt leaders come and go his entire life. He is sad. He is mourning in this section of the book because God's people are not where they were supposed to be as of two years ago. Like, like he thought God's people were totally supposed to be at a different place. Things were supposed to be looking really good, really, really sweet for God's people, and, and it's just not there. The, the people of Israel were supposed to be restored to the promised land two years earlier when Cyrus made a decree that they could all go back, but really just a small amount of people went back, mostly because the Israelites were happy with the comforts of the land of exile. They just felt nice and comfortable in Babylon. They're like, you know what? We don't need to go back. We don't need a temple. Who needs God? We're comfortable here. He's mourning because only a little bit of progress has been made in the rebuilding of the temple. Just the rubble has been cleared and, and the temple foundation has been laid two years later. And the Israelites seem more concerned about preserving their self-interest in that land than actually completing the work so that they can worship God. And he's mourning because he himself is stuck on the outskirts of the Persian Empire, on the banks of the Tigris River. He's sidelined from all the action. He's mourning. He's sad about what he sees going on in front of him. And it's there that God meets him. It's there that he gets an awesome vision of the Son of God. And it's there that the angels are ministering to him. They're about to give him a detailed vision of all that's going to take place for God to purify his people. See, God's people hadn't understood the consequence of exile. And yes, they were going to be gone for 70 years and come back into their land, but they were going to need more punishment. It's kind of like when you put your kid in time out and they think that they're there because of your fault. Like, like they, they think that you're the one who did something bad because they're getting the punishment. And so they need a little bit more time, right? They need a little bit more chastisement, purifying punishment so that their hearts can be restored to God. That's what the angel is going to describe in chapter 11. Everything that it's going to take for God to purify his people, to get their hearts aligned with his. And we're going to find out that sometimes it takes a lot of corrupt world leaders inflicting great harm on God's people to turn their hearts back to God. We're going to get a glimpse into how God works in human history today, and I pray that the result would be this in our hearts. Here's our big idea for the day. Allow the incorruptible Lord to purify your heart through the corruption of world powers. Allow the incorruptible Lord to purify your heart through the corruption of world powers. 
Now, maybe you're thinking, wait a minute, did Pastor Ben word that right? Like, like something seems kind of weird. Just look at that sentence again. And just, like, does something seem kind of weird there? Like, is Pastor Ben really meaning to say that the incorruptible God purifies his people through the corruption of other people? Like, like is that really what he meant? And, and the answer is yes. Yes, obviously, because I'm pointing it out to you, right? This is where it gets mind-blowing. That a God who never sins, a God who is incorruptible, uses the sinful choices of sinful human beings to accomplish His ultimate plan. Don't you love the sovereignty of God that we sang about? That, That God can use the sinful choices of sinful human beings in His plan. He uses corruption that is natural to the heart of sinners to set apart and to purify for Himself a people. To paraphrase Joseph in Genesis 50, what man intends for evil, God intends for good so that many might be saved. And we're going to see how that works today all throughout uh, this vision that the angel is going to give him. Uh, We're going to start by just laying the foundation for this entire chapter. The first point is going to cover the entire chapter. And then we're going to work towards some specific applications of how we can allow this to change our hearts and to purify our hearts. And so let's start here. Uh, Remember, remember the incorruptible Lord controls the ultimate outcome of corrupt powers. Remember, the incorruptible Lord controls the ultimate outcome of corrupt powers. Your Bibles are open to Daniel 11. Like I said, we're going to work through the entire chapter. Uh, This is an incredibly detailed foretelling of what is still in the future for Daniel, but a lot of which is already history for us. So a lot of what Daniel is telling us about has already happened in human history. And uh, so as we work through this, I'm going to talk about some details. I'm going to talk about some names and places and and all those sorts of things. And, And there are about 135 already fulfilled prophecies in Daniel 11 alone. That's mind blowing. Like this is, this is something that, that, some scholars, if they're, if they're more liberal, if they, don't, if they don't believe that the Bible is true, they're like, Daniel had to have written this after all of these events took place. There's no way that this was prophecy. But he did. He did. They, they, they acknowledged this is so detailed and so accurate that it had to have been after, but it, it didn't. It was before. He's writing prophecy. He's t- foretelling the future as if it already happened. It's incredible. It's incredible. But I don't, rem- I don't expect you to, to mention, uh, to remember rather, uh, all of those details that I'm about to, to share. And I'm going to try to not even share all of them because they would just overwhelm you. Uh, what, I, what I hope instead is that you are overwhelmed with this sense that the Lord controls the ultimate outcome of world powers, okay? And I'll share some details along the way so that your faith is built up and so that you can actually follow along because it's going to be impossible without it. But as we work through this, we're going to see five types of corruption that surround God's people. Five types of corruption that surround God's people. And the first is this, the the corruption of strength. The first people that we're going to see are are uh, three kings from 
the Persian Empire, and then a fourth from the Persian Empire, who is Xerxes I. Look at chapter 11, verse 1. And as for me, in the first year of Darius the Mede, I stood up to confirm and strengthen him. Now, let's just stop there for a second. One of the things that makes this chapter really difficult to understand is that the pronouns keep changing who they're referring to. Okay, so like sometimes me is someone else and sometimes him and like it, it's, it's just like we're talking different generations in every single verse sometimes. And so this can be a little bit hard to follow. And so we have to keep asking, according to the context, who is this talking about? And so the first person that we come across there, as for me, uh, who's speaking? Who's talking at this point? And if you remember back to what we studied, if you were with us last week, uh, we were studying that, that Daniel had seen this vision of the Son of God. And then that these angels came and were talking to him. And, and they tell him that from the moment he started praying three weeks prior, they had gone out to answer his prayer. But they were stopped by this person, the prince of Persia. And, and the prince of Persia, we believe, is a demon who is strengthening, working behind the scenes to strengthen all of the kings of Persia. And so these angels were stopped and they're wrestling with this demon for three weeks and, they, and then finally Michael comes along and he helps him out. He, he holds on to him for a little while so the angel can go tell Daniel this vision. And the angel's like, I gotta go back and I gotta go help Michael and, and keep wrestling against these kings of Persia until the kings of Greece come and then somebody else is gonna jump in. We're gonna tag team out and, uh, and, and the, the whole thing is gonna keep continuing. And he says, none contends against him, against the prince of Persia, except for Michael, except for Michael. So as for me, as for this angel, in the first year of Darius the Mede, that's two years prior to what we're reading here in Daniel 11. This is the, that would be the same year that, that Daniel was thrown into the lion's den. That, that would be the same year that, that, uh, the, that the rule switched from Babylon to Persia. Uh, that, that would be the same year that Daniel prayed his great, year, great prayer of confession. So two years prior, since then, this angel has been wrestling against the prince of Persia. And he says, in the first year of Darius the Mede, I stood up to confirm and strengthen him. Who's him? I believe it's Michael. You see these angels wrestling. The spiritual battle that's going on behind the scenes that none of us can see. That's going on even today behind the world powers. That may be. Verse 2. And now I will show you the truth. Behold, three more kings shall arise in Persia, and a fourth shall be far richer than all of them. And when he has come, become strong through his riches, he shall stir up all against the kingdom of Greece. And we know that after uh, Darius and Cyrus, who reigned at the same time, there were three more kings, and then there was this fourth king named Xerxes. Xerxes is the same guy as Ahasuerus, who is in Esther. Uh, he's the king in Esther. And he's the same guy who's like, you know what? We've gone as far east as we can go. We've built our empire. We've, we've, we've sent them out. And, and now let's go west. How about we go west? How about we show our strength even more and go west and conquer Greece? Well, the only thing that he's successful in in conquering Greece is to basically tick Greece off. Like, like he, he tries to conquer Greece, but he, he's unsuccessful. And so he has to go back to his homeland. And, and we're going to see uh, Greece ticked off in a moment. But 
one of the things that can be so hard about living in a world of corrupt leaders is how strong they sometimes look, right? How much power they wield. Like, think about how much the President of the United States, that office, could, if he wanted to, make life really difficult for God's people. The dictator of China already does. The rulers of Iraq and Iran wield genuine strength against anyone who worships the true God. It, it may even be that, that you're concerned about the power of someone who's a little bit more close to home for you. Uh, someone with influence in their life who, who seems to have the upper hand against you. Who seems to be holding all the chips. I have to admit that there's times when I look at someone and I think, you know what, I am just not comfortable with how much power they have right now. And that can be scary. But God uses the perceived strength of corrupt rulers to show that He is stronger and He controls the end. See, Xerxes I is not as strong as he thinks he is. He, he thinks he can defeat Greece, but in Greece he's met his match. None of these Persian rulers, as corrupt as they are and as strong as they seem to be, none of them are ultimate. God was using these corrupt powers and their lust for strength to purify His people, to, to make them seek Him. Remember Persia and Greece later on, they're, they're the oppressors of Israel and God allows them to oppress Israel and show their strength so that His people will cry out to Him for deliverance. So Xerxes manages to tick off Greece and a few generations later, a, a Grecian king named Alexander decides to take revenge on Persia. Look at verse 3. Then a mighty king shall arise who shall rule with great dominion and do as he wills. This is referring to uh, Alexander the Great. And we're going to see through this section uh, the corruption of revenge. The corruption of revenge. Alexander's like, you know what? I'm a little bit mad that Persia tried to, to, to conquer us a few years ago. And, and so I've got the power. I've got the ability. I've got the military know-how. We're going after him. And, and he tears through the Persian Empire. He is the strongest military ruler to have ever stepped on the scene of world history. And he, he's powerful, he's strong, he's, he's vengeful. And then at the age of 33, he dies. How strong really are you? You just die of a sickness after 11 days. Come on. Come on, Alexander. I thought you were God. Verse 5 describes that. I'm sorry, verse 4 describes that. As soon as he has arisen, his kingdom shall be broken and divided toward the four winds of heaven, but not to his posterity, nor according to the authority with which he ruled, for his kingdom shall be plucked up and go to others besides these. So what happens is that, that Alexander's sons aren't ready to rule, and so there's four generals that, that step in and uh, they they kind of duke it out and they they divide up the kingdom and you know not all is happy in the Persian Empire really there's four different uh, four different subsets of the empire and they actually fight against each other quite a bit and we're going to see in this next part uh, that is still in the corruption of revenge uh, that the kingdom of the north uh, the Seleucid dynasty 
and the kingdom of the south, the Ptolemaic dynasty, they just had it out for each other. And so I want to show you this on the map uh, because I want you to see something very important. The map is up on the screen. So the Seleucid kingdom is all that's in pink, and the Ptolemaic kingdom is all that's in green. Uh, anybody know a little bit about where they meet in the middle there? What land is that? Come on, say it louder. Palestine, Israel, the, the, the same land that's constantly in battle right now. Everybody wants Israel. And, and so Israel is going to get caught in the middle of this civil war. Verse 5, Then the king of the south shall be strong, but one of his princes shall be stronger, and he shall rule, and his authority shall be great, uh, shall be a great authority. After some years, they shall make alliance, and the daughter of the king of the south shall come to the king of the north to make an agreement. But she shall not retain the strength of her arm, and he and his arm shall not endure, but she shall be given up, and her attendants, he who fathered her, and he who supported her in those times. So what happens is, um, the, king, the king of the south starts out with all the power. He, he's the strong one, and, and so they, they try to make this alliance with the king of the north, and he's like, you know what? Here's, here's what I'm going to do as a seal of the deal. I'm going to let you marry my daughter. The problem is that the king of the north's already married. And, and he's married to this, this lady named Laodice, right? So they, 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 um, they put together this treaty. They, they have this marriage. It doesn't really work out for either kingdom. Both kingdoms suffers. And then Laodice, the ex-wife, gets mad and kills both the new wife and her, her ex-husband. Like, you know, talk about some revenge, right? Okay, so now the, the king of the south, the new king of the south, which is um, the, the bride's brother, okay? Her name is Berenice, her brother. He's going to get some revenge of his own. Verse 7, and from, a and from a branch from her roots, that's her brother, one shall arise in his place. He shall come against the army and enter the fortress of the king of the north. And he shall deal with them and shall prevail. He shall also carry off to Egypt their gods and their metal images and their precious vessels and their silver and their gold. And for some years he shall refrain from attacking the king of the north. So the brother comes in and he's like, you know what, I'm just having it out after the king of the north. And he goes in and he plunders and he gets all their, their idols and he gets all their gold and he just takes it back to Egypt. And he's like, yes, I have had revenge. And he just settles down for a little while. But verse 9, it's not over. Then the latter, the king of the north, shall come into the realm of the king of the south, but shall return to his own land. So he's like, no, I'm getting those back. And so he's going to have revenge there. And, and it doesn't work. He has to go back to his own land. Verse 10. Then his sons, now we're in another generation, shall wage war. And so the, the north is still trying to get back on the south. This is Antiochus the Great now that's going to rise from the north. His sons shall wage war and assemble a multitude of great forces which shall keep coming and overflow and pass through and shall again carry the war as far as his fortress. Now here's what's interesting. That, that phrase, as far as his fortress, we know from history that, that Antiochus the, the Great conquered and pushed through as far as the Gaza Strip. That, that's where the fortress the, the edge of the boundary of the king of Egypt was. So this is, again, highly affecting Israel. The southern border of Israel is the Gaza Strip, and this is, they're right in the middle of this conflict. Then the king of the south moved with rage. He's like, you're in my territory, dude. Moved with rage 
shall come out and fight against the king of the north. And he shall raise a great multitude, but it shall be given into his hand. And when the multitude is taken away, his heart shall be exalted, and he shall cast down tens of thousands, but he shall not prevail. So what happens is uh, Antiochus is, is holed up, and, uh, and, and he's attacked by the king of the south, and he, the king of the south just annihilates his army. Like, every one of them dead. But Antiochus the Great escapes. And so they have to come up with this little peace treaty. And so there's really no winning. There's no prevailing. And all throughout this section, we see this corruption of revenge. This evil that exists in someone's heart because I want to take from you what you took from me and more. And all the while, Israel is just stuck in the middle. I kind of like to picture this like a tug of war back and forth between the king of the north and the king of the south. And Israel is just that little red ribbon who's getting pulled one way and then pulled another way and then pulled another way. Do you ever feel like you were stuck in the middle of someone else's conflict? Like they're trying to vindicate themselves and you're the one who has to pay for it? Like they're dealing with their issues from the past. Maybe it's a conflict of like issues with their father or issues with their parents. And, and, and you're the one who has to deal with that conflict. You're the victim of their rage. Well, that was Israel. But God was using these corrupt powers and their lust for revenge to purify his people. It's like they're stuck in the agitator of a washing machine, right? And they're just getting pushed back and forth, pushed back and forth. But all the while, it's cleansing them. It's, it's accomplishing God's work. But it, it's not cleansing all of them. There are some Jews who end up giving into the next corruption, the corruption of allegiance. Antiochus the Great is still on the scene, and he's going to corrupt some of the Jews. Look at verse 13. For the king of the north shall again raise a multitude greater than the first. And after some years, he shall come on with a great army and abundant supplies. Uh, so we know that Philip, the Macedon, uh, Philip of Macedon uh, unites with Antiochus the Great, and he helps bolster his army. But there's also this other group in verse 14. In those times, many shall arise, many shall rise against the king of the south and the violent among your own people. Your own people. Who's, who's the angel talking to? Daniel. So the ones who are doing violence to the covenant of God, the ones who don't honor the covenant of God, they're Jews by ethnicity and name only, but they don't have faith in God. They don't love God. The violent among your own people shall lift themselves up in order to fulfill the vision, but they fail. They think that aligning themselves with a corrupt leader will help them escape this back and forth tug of war that they've been involved in, and at least will get away from one of the corrupt leaders, right? But ultimately, it leads to their destruction. It leads to their demise. Verse 15, Then the king of the north shall come and throw up siege works and take a well-fortified city, and the forces of the south shall not stand, or even his best troops, for there shall be no strength to stand. But he who comes against him shall do as he wills. This is Antiochus again. And none shall stand before him, and he shall stand in the glorious land with destruction in his hand. 
The glorious land is Israel, and Antiochus, is gonna, Antiochus the Great is going to rise up, and he's going to have destruction in his hand against Israel. He shall set his face to come with the strength of his whole kingdom, and he shall bring terms of an agreement and perform them. And he shall give them, him the daughter of women to destroy the kingdom, but it shall not stand or be to his advantage. Afterward, he shall turn his face to the coastlands and shall capture many of them, but a commander shall put an end to his insolence. Indeed, he shall turn his insolence back upon him. Then he shall turn his face back toward the fortresses of his own land, but he shall stumble and fall and shall not be found. It doesn't work out for the Jews with their misplaced allegiance. Antiochus the Great uses them for his own advantage, and then when he's done with them, he uses them for destruction. I think this happens a lot with nominal Christians in our day. I think of nominal Jews. I, I can't help but think of nominal Christians in our day. Christians who are Christians in name only. Who, who say, I believe in Jesus, but who have no allegiance to his ultimate kingdom. And, and really, their greater allegiance is to a politician or a political party that they think we're, is going to preserve their interests, preserve their rights, but it ends up corrupting their soul. Don't turn to corrupt leaders to free you from the choices of other corrupt leaders. It's not going anywhere good. Those people who, who do that are not found to be faithful in the end. God was using these corrupt powers and their misplaced allegiance to purify His people. And in Tychus, He's using the, it to... To, to weed out those who are not truly His. Those who will not put their faith in Him alone. Antiochus the Great dies, and his work in Israel paves the way for the worst of all corrupt leaders, Antiochus Epiphanes. And from Antiochus Epiphanes, we talked about him a few weeks ago in chapter 8, uh, he, we see the corruption of deceit. He, he is the corrupt of the corrupt it's, his corruption is seen in deceitful scheme after deceitful scheme. Look at verse 20. Then shall arise in his place one who shall send an exactor of tribute for the glory of his kingdom. But within a few days he shall be broken neither in anger nor in battle. So that's a guy named Seleucus Philopater. He puts some taxes on the Jews. And then in verse 21, this is Antiochus Epiphanes. In his place shall arise a contemptible person to whom royal majesty has not been given. He shall come in without warning and obtain the kingdom by flatteries. So Antiochus Epiphanes has real, no real right to the throne, but because of a series of events uh, that he possibly even orchestrates himself, he ends up sneaking his way in there. He's like, oh, just let me, just let me rule the land. Verse 22, armies shall be utterly swept away before him and broken, even the prince of the covenant. And from the time that an alliance is made with him, he shall act deceitfully and he shall become strong with a small people. Without warning, he shall come into the richest parts of the province, and he shall do what neither his fathers nor his fathers have done, scattering among them plunder and spoil and goods. He shall devise plan against strongholds, but only for a time. So listen, every time that somebody makes an alliance with this dude, he, he fools them. And then he, he, he takes their stuff. And he shall stir up his power and his heart against the king of the south with a great army. Here's that civil war again. 
And the king of the south shall wage war with an exceedingly great and mighty army, but he shall not stand, for plots shall be devised against him. So uh, Antiochus is going to sneak in even to his own household. Even those who eat his food shall break him. And he's going to deceive them into turning against their own dad. His army shall be swept away, and many shall fall down slain. And as for those kings, their hearts shall be bent on doing evil. They shall speak lies at the same table, but to no avail, for the end is yet to be at a time appointed. And he shall return to his own land with the great wealth, but his heart shall be set against the holy covenant. So he's going he's gonna to plunder the south, and then he's going to return to his own land, and he's going to now set his eyes on the Jews. He's like, I'm, I'm done with these Jews. And he shall work with them and return to his own land. At the time appointed, he shall return and come into the south, but it shall not be at this time as it was before. For ships of Kittim, so he's making another attack on the south, and now Rome is going to get involved. Ships of Kittim shall come against him, and he shall be afraid and withdraw, and he shall turn back and be enraged and take action against the holy covenant. He shall turn back and pay attention to those who forsake the holy covenant. So Rome helps out the south this time. And Antiochus can't have his way. And so like a little baby, he goes back and he's like, you know what, I'm going to take out my aggression on Jerusalem. I'm going to take out my aggression on Israel. He shall turn back and pay attention to those who forsake him, and forsake the Holy Covenant. So he's going to use these false Jews again, next generation, still using the false converts, or still using the false Jews Verse 31, forces from him shall appear and profane the temple and fortress and shall take away the regular burnt offering and they shall set up the abomination that makes desolate. We read about that in chapter 8. So they, they, he stops all real temple worship and then he goes in and he slaughters a pig on the altar and he makes the priest eat it. This guy's evil. And he actually convinces some of the Jews that this is a good idea. He shall seduce with flattery those who violate the covenant. But, we're going to come back to this verse later, so hold on to verse 32. But the people who know their God shall stand firm and take action. And the wise among the people shall make many understand, though for some days they shall stumble by the sword and flame, by captivity and plunder. When they stumble, they shall receive a little help, and many shall join themselves to them with flattery. And some of the wise shall stumble so that they may be refined, purified, and made white until the time of the end, for it awaits the appointed time. Antiochus is deceitful. Do you think we have any deceitful leaders these days? Maybe. Like it's election season. I'm not sure anybody's going to tell the truth for the next three months if they are telling the truth now or ever have. But don't think that you're immune to it. Everybody thinks, well, my leader's not going to tell, tell a lie. My leader's not going to deceive me. Don't think that you're immune to that. Some of those types of Jews that I mentioned before, Jews by birth but not by faith, they fell for Antiochus. It says even some of the wise ones fell for him and stumbled. But God was using the corrupt powers and their deceitful schemes to purify his people, to weed out those who were not genuinely his through faith. And he's going to keep doing that until the time of the end. 
All right, so we've just covered a huge amount of history. Everybody take a deep breath. <sighs> I'm kind of feeling that too. Don't worry. But we're now going to jump from what is history for us. All of this has been future for Daniel. But we're going to jump from what's history for us to now what's a time still in our future today. The, the appointed time, it's called here, or the latter days, or the time of the end that the angel refers to in chapter 10. We're, we're going to the time of the final Antichrist. And we're going to see the ultimate corruption, the, the corruption of self-glory. That's what we see in the Antichrist. Verse 36. And the king shall do as he wills. He shall exalt himself and magnify himself above every god and shall speak astonishing things against the God of gods. He shall prosper till the indignation is accomplished, for what is decreed shall be done. He shall pay no attention to the gods of his fathers, or to the one beloved by women. He shall not pay attention to any other god, for he shall magnify himself above all. Self-glory. This is going to be an irreligious person, someone who, who is going to end up paying no attention. At, at, at some point, it's going to look like he loves the Jews. At some point in his history. But then he's going to turn and he's going to be like, you know what, we're just throwing all religion out. I'm God. I'm ultimate. He's going to magnify himself above all. He shall honor the God of fortresses instead of these. Uh, that's a reference to his love for military power. The God of fortresses. He, he, he loves just... I can bomb anybody I feel like. I'm just going to knock them out. A God whom his fathers did not know, and he shall honor with gold and silver, with precious stones and costly gifts. He shall deal with the strongest fortresses with, with the help of a foreign God. Remember, Satan is the one who is helping out the Antichrist. And those who acknowledge him, shall he shall load with honor. He shall make them rulers over many and shall divide the land for a price. At the time of the end, he sh the, the king of the south shall attack him. So not everybody's going to love him, but he's going to gain all of this ultimate power. And there's going to be a few kings that rise up against him. The king of the south shall attack him, but the king of the north shall rush upon him like a whirlwind with chariots and horsemen and with many ships. And he shall come into countries and shall overthrow and pass through. So he's just going to knock, he's, he's just going to, anybody who tries to oppose him, he's just going to take out. He shall come into the glorious land, and tens of thousands shall fall, but these shall be delivered out of his hand. Edom and Moab and the main part of the Ammonites, he shall stretch out his hand against the countries, and the land of Egypt shall not escape. He shall become ruler of the treasures of gold and of silver and all the precious things of Egypt, and the Libyans and the Cushites shall follow in his train. But news from the east and the north shall alarm him, and he shall go out with great fury and destroy and devote many to destruction." And he's going to win. He's got, he's, he shall pitch his palatial tents. He's, he's got this palace tent between the sea and the glorious mountain. This Antichrist seems pretty powerful. Like, can anybody stop him? Can anybody stop him? Look at the end of verse 45. Yet he shall come to his end with none to help him. The Antichrist stands opposed to Christ, namely because he believes he is above Christ. His strength and his heart come from Satan himself. And we're going to see that, that he thinks he can do whatever he wants by, by natural means. 
He seems ultimate, but he shall come to an end. He shall come to an end, and none can help him. We're going to read more about that in Daniel 12 next week, but but if you're reading in our plan this week, you, you saw the fall of the Antichrist in Revelation 19. It's up on the screen. And the beast was captured, that's the Antichrist, and with it the false prophet who in its presence had done the signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped its image. And these two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur. He shall come to his end with none to help him. And the one who's going to take him out is Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen? And when we get the big picture of history, we clearly see that corruption leads to ultimate failure. Every single time. From Xerxes to Alexander to Antiochus the Great to Antiochus Epiphanes to the Antichrist, all of them fall in some way, even unexpectedly. And as God's people find themselves in the middle of that struggle, He's using it all to purify them. To set them apart. To set them apart from any kingdom of this world so that they would be ready for His indestructible kingdom. John Piper says of, of, these, of the corruption that we see in his, the, this world, he, he uses the word spectacular sins. He says spectacular sins do not just fail to nullify God's purpose to glorify Christ. They succeed by God's unfathomable providence in making His gracious purpose come to pass. This truth is the steel God offers to put in the spine of His people as they face the worst calamities. In other words, Corrupt leaders and their incredible ways of sinning do not stop God's plan. And not only do they not stop God's plan, but God uses them to actually work out His plan. And when you get that, it strengthens you to live for Him through anything. When you see the corruption of world powers, Remember that God is working out His plan to the letter. They are all part of it. They're not getting in His way. He's using them to purify His people. He's using them to purify your heart and my heart. And if you start to feel your heart get restless over who is in charge at any given moment and how that's affecting God's people, just stop. Take a breath and remember that corrupt leaders have come and gone, but the incorruptible Lord remains the same yesterday, today, and forever. He's getting after your heart. He's working to remove the death grip that you have on the kingdoms of this world so that you would take hold of His indestructible kingdom. So that you would cling to Him in the surf and the waves that are trying to knock you over and off your feet and away from Him. As you face corrupt world powers, He wants you to stand firm, take action, and seek purity until God's appointed time. Stand firm, take action, and seek purity until God's appointed time. 
This is where we're going to close out today. We're going to go back to verses 32 and 35. Uh, we're going to start here. Uh, stand firm by understanding God's plan. We've got to stand firm by understanding God's plan. Look at verse 32. Antiochus is seducing with flattery those who violate the covenant, those who are, are, are Jews by name only, who don't have their faith in God. But the people who know their God shall stand firm. The people who know their God shall stand firm. This week it was a lot of work to understand what God was putting down in Daniel, right? Like, not every sermon is like this, right? It's a lot of work. And if you're reading through Revelation and Matthew in our reading plan, it's a lot of work to figure out what all those symbols mean and to dig through it all. But if you put the work in, you'll get the strength out. Because God's Word is revealing God to us. This is God's Word. He's saying, this is who I am. This is what I'm doing. And I want you to know me. And I want you to know what I'm up to so that your faith in me would be built and strengthened. In our easy everywhere culture, studying passages like Daniel 11 is not popular. But if we only do what is easy, we will become weak followers of Jesus. There's a reason why military boot camp is hard. Because if it was easy, the soldiers would be weak when it came, comes time for battle. And we need to remember something that we've said often at Oak Hill, but we haven't said it very recently. John Cheek reminded me of this, one of our elders. He said, we need to say this again. Life's a battle, not a picnic. Life is a battle, not a picnic. Daniel 10 through 12 shows us that, that there are spiritual forces raging around us. There are corrupt leaders who are being influenced by those forces against God's people to either lull us into a state of complacency or to actively work against us. And God's plan is not designed to make your life easy. It's designed to make your heart pure. We, we live in a fallen and corrupt world. And we can either give in to that corruption or we can stand firm by understanding God's plan. We know that the ultimate plan of God is Jesus Christ. That He would save a people for Himself as the incorruptible Lord. See, when the whole world, including Israel, had their hearts set on corruption, the incorruptible Lord entered into the corrupted creation and he did so humbly. He went to the most vulnerable and weak, unlike the corrupt rulers of their day. He went to the outcast and the lowly. He went to the ones who knew that they needed a Savior. And he said, I'll be that Savior. I'm going to die as a spotless sacrifice for your sin in your place. And he died on a cross at the hand of corrupt rulers For our sin. 
Every single one of us are corrupt in heart because we have turned against God. We have given our allegiance elsewhere. And he wants it back. We deserve death for that. And our incorruptible Lord died in our place. Only to then rise again because the Holy One cannot see corruption. Amen? Corrupt things rot out and die. They don't last forever. Only pure things remain. And it's only in the death and resurrection of Jesus that God's people can ultimately be made pure. That's the plan that he's working out. That's the only salvation that we have. That we would turn from the corruption of this world to the incorruptible Lord. And if you've never done that, I would urge you, do that today. Do that today. Because once we know God through Jesus, and once we understand his plan, we can stand firm. And then we can do this next thing. We can teach others his plan. Remember, God is purifying a whole people for himself. So it's not just about you getting to stand firm. You're like, as long as I'm standing firm, I don't care about the rest. We've got we to gotta teach others. We've got to make disciples, right? And so take action by instructing others in his wisdom. Verse 32 again, he says, stand firm and ta- take action. What was the specific action that they took? Look at verse 33. The wise among the people shall make many understand. The wise among the people shall make many understand. People won't be purified if they don't understand the gospel. If they don't understand God's plan in all of this. Remember, there was a group that went along with Antiochus Epiphanes because they didn't get God's plan. There there are Christians, so-called Christians in this world, especially in our nation, especially in our area, who think, yeah, I know Jesus. He's the one who gets me to heaven and he doesn't matter at all today. And they get swept up with the corrupt leaders of this world. People think they need a human ruler to save them instead of a supernatural savior. It's going to be that way when the Antichrist comes as well. And it's the faithful teaching of the wise that God uses to purify people in those times. We, we need every person in this church telling one another, telling the world that Jesus is the incorruptible Lord. That's why we gather here today. That's why we, that's why we meet in our gospel communities to tell each other, keep your eyes on Jesus. The kingdoms of this world are going to rise and fall, but he's going to remain forever. And we need to remind one another that while corrupt leaders use and abuse people, our Lord humbled himself to save people. We need to teach people that God has a plan that's moving toward an appointed time when Jesus squashes the corrupt leaders of this world and establishes his indestructible kingdom and reigns forever. Can you think of one person in your life that doesn't need to know that? If you know the plan of God to save sinners through Jesus Christ, you need to instruct others through that wisdom. Because that's the hope. That vision of the end of God's plan causes us to live with purity now. And that leads us to this last point of application. Seek purity 
by waiting for the appointed time. Verse 35, even some of the wise shall stumble so that they may be refined, purified, and made white until the time of the end. For it still awaits the appointed time. It's hard even for wise people, even for people who know the plan to maintain perspective when corruption is all around them. Do you ever feel that? Do you ever feel like it's hard to maintain your perspective? But in every age, God is using that corruption, that trial that they're going through to purify and refine His people. He's drawing a clear line in the sand between the allegiance to the world and allegiance to His kingdom. He's drawing a clear line between corrupt leaders of this world and the incorruptible King who is Jesus. And some who are in the church will prove they don't know Him because they put their faith in someone or something else. But those who know Him will live with Him forever. And when our hearts are set on that kingdom, we will want the purity of that kingdom now. But we're going to talk about that kingdom a little bit more next week. But for now, let's pray as the worship team comes. Heavenly Father, your plan is amazing. That you can use the sinful choices of human beings and the hearts that are already against you and you can turn them around for your purpose. We thank you for that. We, we worship you for that truth that we've seen in Daniel 11 today that you already knew what was coming and you knew how to use it for your people. And so Lord, we want to align our hearts with you today. We want to be on your side. We want to stand with you forever in eternity. We want Jesus to be our Lord. Father, I pray for anyone who is listening here today who does not know Jesus as their Savior and Lord. For anyone who has thought that they need another Savior to save them from the corruption of this world and the corruption of their hearts. Lord, would you open their eyes to that and would you save them and would you rescue them even right now? Father, I pray for those who are fearful right now and who see the world events playing out and they're, they're scared. I pray that you would comfort them with the truth that you are in control. That you will take care of your people and that you will establish your kingdom. Father, I pray for those who know your plan and who are confident in that plan. 
And I pray that you would use them powerfully even this week to teach others the wisdom of your plan. I pray that you would open doors of opportunity so that many might know that Jesus is the ultimate Lord and the good and perfect Savior. Lord, I pray that you would purify your church as we wait for you. Help us to set our hearts upon you. O Lord, who's the same yesterday, today, and forever. We see the the end of these rulers, but we see you are forever the same. So we praise you now. Sing. Thank you for listening to Oak Hill Fellowship Church. Stay connected with us by finding us on social media or by joining us Sunday mornings at 9 a.m. Until then, remember that you are loved.